0: Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives of lesser-known Victorian writers. And I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. ahead to 1852, when we know for a fact that Mary Elizabeth Braden started acting. Now as I mentioned briefly in the Wilkie Collins bio episode, the Victorians thought of actors as loose and not respectable. So a young lady who took up acting was, by society's estimate, a ruined young lady. Uh, But Braddon was enamored of the stage. She wanted to support herself and help her mother, but she also loved the adventure of it. Accounts vary on whether she decided for herself to take a stage name or whether the family pressured her into taking one, since they couldn't convince her not to act. But she did. She called herself Mary Satan, uh, and she was a professional actor for about eight years. Her mother accompanied her on all trips, just to make sure everything was above board, I guess. But maybe also, she was maybe she was really supportive about it.
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's some um, like respectability thing there as well, where, you know, it's kind of seen that she's kind of more protective if her mother's with her. Um, I still remember reading about saying, it was Frances Turner, where it was talking about her childhood as a child actor, and it's like one time some guys tried to pick her up outside of a theatre in their carriage, and if her mother hadn't been there, she would have been ruined, even more than she was in the
0: Yeah, yeah, so her mother just really kind of, being there protects her reputation much more than it would have been otherwise. Robert Lee Wolfe, who I mentioned earlier, is her first major biographer, notes that she acted a big role in Tom Taylor's Still Waters Run Deep. And if you're not familiar with Tom Taylor, he was a celebrity playwright like um, Tennessee Williams, or I guess the modern equivalent would be someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's a huge deal. And it was one of his plays, Our American Cousin, that Abraham Lincoln was watching the night of his assassination, actually. So Six Degrees of Mary Elizabeth Broughton. So Braden worked her way up through the acting ranks and apparently got pretty good at it. She earned leading lady roles and decided to take a shot at advancing her career in London. Before we get more into detail about her acting career, though, this is the first time in her life where we actually have plentiful images of her. So I thought it might be a good idea to describe what she looked like based on the photographs and paintings we have from the period. She doesn't look like what I think of as a a classic beauty, I guess. Um, She's... Definitely not of oh, the pre-Raphaelite disposition, not the ethereal woman she writes. She has a really strong chin. Yeah, I don't
1: want to use the word playing, but I also do. But not in a negative way, just in a... If you saw her walking down the street, you wouldn't go, Oh, how ugly. Not that I do that to anyone, but you say wouldn't be amazed by her beauty.
0: Yeah, she's kind of average looking, which I mean, like, Queen Victoria was also not that stunning, right, so... It's not a comment on her at all.
1: There's a reason that average and average is because that's what most people look like. Most people fall in that back. Mm.
0: The, the photo This particular photograph makes her look like she has a really um, strong gaze. Like her eyes are really striking. Yeah, you
1: can kind of, even if she wasn't in what was like a theatrical costume, you can tell she's an actor from this picture.
0: Mm-hmm. It reminds me of um, in Aurora Floyd, which is one of her early novels, She her the eponymous main character, Aurora, is always described as having flashing black eyes that are really striking, but being otherwise plain, but that her eyes make her beautiful.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah. And
0: then we have this picture, um, which was painted by uh, William Powell Frith in 1865, so it's a little bit of a jump ahead. Um, and I've linked this in the show notes as well. Both of these images are in the show notes. Um and this is of her as she's uh early adulthood, but a mature adult at this point, I I would say. And she still looks pretty plain, but she's also got the strong gaze going on here, even in a painting. She's looking directly at the observer. Yeah, she's doing that again.
1: And she's very kind of there's like there's some emphasis on respectability in this as well. She's very like Oh yeah got my desk in the background and my lovely like desk set up in front of the window. Mm-hmm. You can just imagine her like she's just stood up from writing new sensation fiction novel. yeah, it really is like just interrupted her writing.
0: These Victorian hairdo's are something else to look at too. She's got it almost looks like um Princess Leia side buns, but not quite as poofy. It's like, looped over her ears.
1: Yeah, it always kind of boggles the mind how they managed to keep this all up. with like, no hairspray, no straighteners, not as good pins.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't even want to think about how long that would take. <laughs> so, I guess I'll just end my commentary on her acting career by saying that um, she quickly shot up into leading roles, or large roles, but after... Um, She goes to London and tries out a season there and kind of um, is not met with the praise she expected and returns home to act regionally again. She starts being handed these um, middle-aged woman roles. So she's being aged out already, even though she's only been acting for eight years, um, and they're giving her roles she's not really quite as suited to play. And so eventually the acting career fizzles out and her writing career begins in earnest. So, I'll turn this over to you for a minute, Eleanor. You want to give us sort of the rundown of her, uh, what we know about her novel writing career?
1: Yeah, sure. So, it's prodigious. She writes. I think, the yeah, The City so of Mary Elizabeth Badham Society comes 90 and 150 short stories, numerous plays and essays. So, kind of. I think you can count on one hand the amount of people in the world who've read all of them. Absolutely. Um, if, if
0: anyone has.
1: I know someone who's gone close, but I don't know if anyone even has read all of them. Um, yeah, and then in 1860, her first novel published under the title Three Times Dead. Um, that goes largely unnoticed. So being a shrewd businesswoman, which I think is one of the things we really have to... Praise she made some changes to the text and re-released it as The Trail of the Serpent in the next year, in 61. And she'd begun writing whilst acting in Beverly in Yorkshire and had been commissioned to write three concepts by Charles Robinson Emerson. Braddon described him as a bludely enterprising printer of Beverly who had saved my little versus in the Beverly recorder and made me the spirited offer of £10 for a serial story. And she's also in Bedley when she meets John Gilby. He's a well-known figure on the racing circuit, which is so characteristic of Brandon. Like, we talked about Aurora Floyd earlier, and racing seems to... its One of the defining characteristics of Aurora's personality is that she's really into racing.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And womanly. Um, and he soon became an enthusiastic supporter of hers. So he commissioned her to write a collection of verse and kind of enticed her away from the stage by offering her a wage for that, as well as financing the publication. So she's now able to write full time, which is another influence to get away from the stage, as well as what you were saying about her being aged out. But there's, there's a saying that anything that appears to you but to be true probably is, and that that definitely applies here. So Gilby invested heavily in Bradley's career, and as she herself admits, must have lost money in his noble patronage. But he's also an incredibly demanding customer and seems to have expected more than literature as a return on his investment. So when she's working for him, he sends her copious letters. He's basically sending her a letter a day, nagging her and saying, work harder, do this specific thing that I want you to do. And she, when she enters into a serious relationship with another man, his jealousy gets the better of him. And in one letter he writes, I can only feel a pity for you, not to mingle with contempt. I wonder if you have one retrieving trait in your character. So really, the man's born.
0: Yeah, he sounds like such a nice guy. <laughs> so rude of
1: her not to say his romantic feelings after he paid her money and just basically acted like a, like a bottom patron.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. So inconsiderate.
1: So did you want to say a bit more about Gilby? Our favourite guy.
0: Yeah, for all the problems of this business-slash-awkward um, uh, relationship between the two, um, <laughs> there's one silver lining, which is that Gilby financed a volume of poetry. So Braden had been writing poetry for some time and actually publishing it in the newspapers, and she would continue to do so for the rest of her life. But with the money Gilby gave her... Braden wrote um, a collection titled Garibaldi and Other Poems, which she has mixed feelings about because in a way, it's something he pressured her to write. He told her, he suggested the topic or of the title poem, which is about uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, one of the leading figures in the unification of Italy. And she really didn't enjoy writing that, but the rest of the collection is lovely. Um, There are some of the shorter pieces that I'd really encourage you to take a look at, including Among the Hyacinths and Waiting. And this collection came out in 1861 to mild praise, but mostly patronizing criticisms. So reviewers would say things like, she's got a really good eye for description and detail, but she needs to basically do her time in the word mines, do a lot more work before she can be considered a good or talented writer. Um, She chooses not to go the poetry route, though, and I think part of it is to do with the other man that you mentioned cryptically a minute ago, Eleanor. So if you want to fill us in on that situation.
1: Yes. So the other man is Irish publisher John Maxwell. Um, So they meet at the offices of his magazine, The Welcome Guest, in eighteen sixty seems a little bit awkward to begin with because Maxwell is already married and has five children. But his wife, Marianne, suffered from I believe an unspecified mental illness. It kind of just sounds like a nervous breakdown. Do you know any more about her illness, Courtney?
0: No, I did some digging but there's nothing nothing I could find really specified what it was. Yeah, it kind of
1: worked to me just like a nervous breakdown but so she suffered from this illness and they've been separated but Maxwell was unable to obtain a divorce. Um, it seems a really common misconception that Mary Ann was institutionalised, um, which is definitely what I was taught when I studied Lady Audley's Secret at the GCSE. From from more recent readings she's actually cared for by relatives back in Ireland. Things move pretty quickly between Brad and Maxwell, which she called Max. By the end of 1860 she and her mother have moved back to London. By January sixty one she's working as an editorial assistant for Max and by sixty two they moved into a house on Mecklenburg Square and Bradley gave birth to their first child, Gerald, in March of that year. So really moving nice and quickly. Um, oh yeah. So basically they're in a common law marriage, so doing everything that a husband and wife would do, but without the priest or the piece of paper. Yes. And then 1862, her best-known novel, Lady Audley's Secret, I mentioned, was published in a band edition that had begun serialisation in 61. Uh, but the journal it was running in, which was one of Maxwell's, um, that failed financially and she had to find another home for a serial novel. So what I really love about the story of Lady Audley's Secret is that once Robin Goodfellow, the, the periodical that starts serialisation in, folds, she has to find a new vehicle for it because readers are writing to her like pleading to know what happens next and you can kind of see why they were so desperate for this the first one finished with robert audley he's just found out that his aunt who he suspects is involved in his friend's disappearance has suddenly left for london and he resolves to follow her so we leave him sitting in a first-class carriage smoking a cigar in mild defiance of the authorities and it's really a kind of unintentional cliffhanger, so you can tell people being like, We need
0: more, yeah. Um, so it's pretty remarkable that it did get picked up, or remarkable, but also not happenstance because it gets picked up by another of Maxwell's journals. Um, so she's really lucky in that way because many novels just fizzled out and were never finished because of journals or magazines or newspapers folding during their serialization. So Lady Oddly's Secret was closely followed by Aurora Floyd, which was mentioned several times, um, partly because I'm hyper aware of the novel right now, because I'm uh, currently leading a year-long read-along of Aurora Floyd on Twitter, um, and I've linked to some blog posts about that if you're interested. It's still Possible to join in if you want to kind of crash-read the first couple of parts of the novel, Um, but we read the original serial installments once a month and chat about them, um, which has been a really interesting experience. Anyway, so this one was serialized from 1862 through 1863 in Temple Bar, overlapping in writing and publication with Lady Audley's Secret, Uh, and she was prolific and... Um, hard at work like this throughout her career, often working on multiple things at the same time. Aurora Floyd is a really interesting example of uh, her work, her early work. People often comment on the nuance and the maturity of her later work as compared to her early work, but I really think this novel, which is her second really successful novel, is a good example of what she was capable of because it really, I think it holds up alongside some of George Eliot's work in terms of tone and narration, um, and, and the realist strategies she's attempting to use, even though it's a sensational novel. So a lot of people pigeonhole her as a sensation fiction novelist, but even early on, even at this point, we can see that she's writing, um, in diverse modes and she's drawing on lots of tools and she's really, um, honing her craft in remarkable ways.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm a strong believer that if you're going to be really strict about generic boundaries and what you read, you're just going to limit your experience. You can acknowledge Braddon's brilliance in sensation fiction without ignoring her work in other genres, like realism or poetry. And I'm also one of the world's biggest Elliot fangirls, but I'm still kind of irritated by her encouraging this kind of vein of thought. Like she writes to Blackwood Her publisher I sicken again with despondency Under the sense that The most carefully written books lie Deep under most of a heap of trash I suppose the reason Why six shilling editions Are never on the railway stores Is that they are not so attractive To the majority As the trail of the Serpent*. I and mean, I'm just sitting here thinking George come on You can both You can both have nice things And do well Kind of Right Maybe it's optimistic But I kind of that as a classic example of women misdirecting their frustration at one another rather than the conditions that they're working in that mean they can't both succeed. It's also really sad because they seem to, like, kind of lead parallel lives in a lot of ways. Like, Elliot also had a common-law marriage with a man who was unable to divorce the mother of his children and was kind of the subject of scandal because of it. So, I kind of, I wish there was an alternate timeline where they'd get over their rivalry and become friends.
0: Oh, I would read that novel. I would, Yeah, that would be amazing.
1: We have a, another request for our listeners who write neo-Victorian fiction.
0: Yes. Yes, please, please. It also bears noting, um, before you carry on, Eleanor, that it's about this time in her life that Margaret Oliphant, another major female writer of the century, basically trashes Braddon's work, um, using her as an example of the... Uh, women writers of the era who she deems are second rate or worse. Um, But Oliphant retracts later in life and seems to regret it and I don't think George Eliot ever at least publicly uh, reconsidered her position on Braddon. No, I don't think she did. I think she kind of stuck to this
1: kind of elitism that you can see as a defense mechanism, but it doesn't what Olyphant is and certify it was wrong but uh, this is one of the things that's really interesting with all the older women of this era they're saying like Braddon saying I wish I was respected like Elliot Elliot and Oliver are saying I wish I was popular like Braddon like they seem, they always seem to be thinking oh she's got that I don't have I wish they could
0: all have that thing. Yeah, it's like there's a real feeling among them that they're competing for the same resources, and so they can never be congenial or on one another's side.
1: Yeah. It's such a real shame. Yeah. So to give a bit more biography, so in 1863, Bracken had two more children. Confusingly enough, she has Francis, which is the son in January, and Fanny, which presumably is short for St. Francis in the female version in December. And by that point, rumours are begun to circulate about the relationship between herself and Max. So in an effort to silence these, he inserts a note of their marriage in newspapers in 1864, but unfortunately that drew the attention of Marianne's brother-in-law, so her sister's husband, Richard Knowles, Richard Brinty Knowles, and he's... Not happy with that, and he's more than a little vindictive to me. So he wrote to the same newspapers to let them know that Mary Ann was still alive, and as such, the, ma- the marriage was not legitimate. So I think he says something like, his wife, still, his wife and the mother and his five children are alive and well.
0: So all of that drama's going on, and then add to it, um, in 1866, Francis dies at three years old. Um, I haven't been able to find much about it in biographies, but it must have been a rough time. In any century, that would be a really rough time. There's no real gap in her novel writing though, and I can only speculate that she buried herself in her work. She clearly loved her work, and so that must have been um, a bit of a refuge to her, an escape from the horribleness of life. Um, Child mortality rates were high throughout the century. I'm not quite sure what they were at this particular time because they aren't officially recorded until 1877, but um, in 1868, overworked and probably still grieving Frances, Braddon has a nervous breakdown. So, a rough few years in Braddon's life. Not a whole lot gets said about it in any of the biographies I saw, though, so we don't really have a window onto her... um, her own thoughts on the time. Or, I mean, we probably do. If I could get to the archives and do a little digging, I could give you more here, but sadly I don't have access to that. So all we can do is speculate from here. Yeah, it was kind of a
1: guess until, kind of, 1873? And then we have another death, but they find that of Mary Abbe. So that's Maxwell's first wife. Um, so he writes to Noel several times, begging him to keep the funeral quiet. Obviously he's like, invite family, invite friends, just keep it up. Papers, please. And it seems like such a bad reading of character because Knowles was never gonna do that. He sees his chance to be petty. Um, So what he actually does is place prominent advertisements in most of the London newspapers announcing that John Maxwell's wife has died. Um, So I'm pretty sure I remember reading something about a lot of people do you know if people were concerned about Braden? Did they think she died?
0: Oh, that sounds so familiar.
1: So I... I'm not sure if that's something that actually happened or that I made up in my head as a likely thing that happened.
0: I feel like I read that somewhere too. Yeah. Like she had to write people to reassure them that she was alive. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Regardless, the public just kind of reminded that Brandon hadn't legally married him and then... As with any celebrity scandal, that becomes front page news. On both sides of the Atlantic, so the New York Times picks up on it and gleefully reports that a curious and, I may say, characteristic incident has happened to Miss Braddon. Having, like so many of her heroines, committed a species of bigamy, she's at last been found out. All Miss Braddon did was to go through some facetious form of marriage with a man who was already married. She thus became, not indeed a bigamist, but at least an accomplice to bigamy which kind of really peed me when I read that, because they've contradicted themselves. Like, the marriage wasn't real, so neither was the bigamy. They're, they've not actually committed a crime, and they're just kind of sensationalising it to full paper. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad no one does that anymore. <laughs> but, yeah, I kind of... I start living in sin and then I'll talk about pretending to be married. is kind of an affront social marriage.
0: Right. And I think maybe all the more. I mean, it seems like the press really gleefully ran with it because she writes about precisely these kinds of situations. Not that it's an excuse. Like, they. The press and also the brother-in-law were just. oh, oh! Uh, it just makes me so angry to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: this is what. Uh, Elliot has a similar situation, but doesn't face the same kind of flack because she, like, the morals of her personal life, and never really put upon her, like, work in the same way. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Um, I keep being struck by how much this time in her life could be an alternative urbanized plot of Jane Eyre, Um, since it's the mad wife. The I mean, if Jane Eyre had gone through with it, you know, it seems like even when she was teaching herself to write by imitating novels, she gravitated toward Jane Eyre. It seems like such a a weird but um, accurate parallel for her life in in some ways, like a weird meta commentary. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So this newspaper drama apparently happened in, uh, peaked in nineteen eighteen seventy four. So 1873 into 1874, and prompted novelist Charles Reed, who is another major writer of sensation fiction in the era and a friend of Braddon's, to write an account in his personal notebook. Which, uh, just an aside, it's really nice of him to write this in his personal notebook. It would have been much nicer if he had released it in a newspaper. Um, <laughs> anyway, so he writes... I don't know where to find a better woman industrious self-denying gentle affectionate talented and utterly unassuming a devoted daughter faithful wife loving mother and kindly stepmother he dedicated his next book the wandering heir to her with the following words to my friend m e braddon as a slight mark of respect for her private virtues and public talents so i guess he did publicize a little bit of a rebuttal but He could have done much more, considering he felt so strongly. Um. Also, I know this list of her qualities is high praise for the Victorians, but I think it bears noting that, consciously or not, he felt compelled to bookend her skill and proficiency with comments on her her passivity and her selflessness and her womanliness.
1: Yeah, I have a bit of a soft spot to read after the fashion show to Rosina Borwellism, which is a story for another day. And he definitely seems a lot more enlightened in the treatment of women than many of his contemporaries, but if anything, that kind of makes it more depressing that he's still so like reticent about publicly supporting women
0: yeah, it's like you you get so invested in someone and you think yes they're i can I can get behind them, they're doing good things, and then so it's all the more devastating when they have a a failure, or um, something that doesn't live up to your expectations of them. Um, so this seems like a good time to have an aside on the Maxwell Braden publishing machine. Or maybe Empire. Or Hustle. I don't know, it was something. They had a system going, it worked really well. So here we go. Maxwell bought out and established many magazines during his lifetime. It seems like a bit of an addiction for him. They were very rarely financially successful, though. Um, the most successful, uh, was Belgravia, a London magazine, which was founded in 1866 and edited by Braddon. It ran until 1899, though she was only editor till, I believe, 1876, 77, something like that, for about 10 years. Other ventures of Max's included Town Talk, which is his first, uh, a weekly gossip sheet, Welcome Guests*, which he purchased in 1859, changed the title to Robin Goodfellow, and in which Lady Oddly's Secret began its serialization, as we've already mentioned. He lost 2,000 pounds on this um, by the time it folded. He also started Temple Bar, which he established in 1860 and was edited by another notable figure in the Victorian publishing world, George Sala. Um, And Aurora Floyd was published in this between 1862 and 1863 and St. James's Magazine, Halfpenny Journal, and Sixpenny Magazine, which all began in 1861. So you can see that he was taking a lot onto his plate, and probably because of this, he declared bankruptcy in 1862. He turned to Braden for help, she helped out with money and, and her writing skills, and they often They were often already supporting each other before this though, so this is a really obvious instance, but he provided a place where she was basically guaranteed publication of her works and she um, brought in readers and currency with her very very popular novels, so it was a mutually beneficial relationship, although from my perspective it looks like Braddon did a lot of the heavy lifting.
1: Yeah, I would agree. Um... And so you mentioned at the start that she's known as the Queen of the Circulating Library and I would she could easily claim the title of maybe Princess of Periodical Fiction as well so there's a website that I love and I know you love as well at the Circulating Library It's a resource um, Oh yes We'll list it in the show notes but that has Braddon as the most, the second most prolific author of serial fiction So she wrote 60 serial titles and she's just behind Margaret Oliphant 62 and then they're both far and away ahead of the next most prolific, which is Walter Bevan's 42. And then, Belgravia also makes a list of most prolific periodicals, as does Temple Bar. So I think they're both in the top 50, Belgravia on at 7, I think so, uh, Temple Bar's
0: higher up. Yeah, so by modern standards, they're definitely a power couple, and they're a powerhouse in the world of Victorian publishing. Definitely. Even though Maxwell seems to have really bad luck with keeping journals and magazines afloat. (laughs) Um, So with that vertiginous example of productivity, let's catch our breath and uh, take a short break before we turn to Braden's golden age. Robert Wolfe calls the years from 1875 to Braden's death in 1915, months before my own great-grandfather was born, by the way, so not really all that long ago, the years of fulfillment. Um, So basically, these are Braden's golden years. She's um, a great success internationally as a novelist, and she gets to really enjoy the fruit of that. So we'll just detail some of the highlights of this time.
1: One of my favourite Branham stories is that in 1876, she performed at a gala event at the Theatre Royal in Jersey. Um, And the advertisement stresses that she's an eminent novelist and will be reprising a role that she played during a private performance at home. So the press read that, and their reviews are sympathetic, but a little patronising, as they kind of assume that she's like a lady amateur and she's just the famous lady that wants to have a go at acting rather than a former actress that's reprising a role. <laughs> so they're very like, oh, she's not very good at acting, but she is an amateur.
0: Wow.
1: Hilarious, because she's not.
0: Right, I wonder how they would have felt. Like, would they have taken her more seriously if they knew she was a professional or torn her apart even more? Yeah, I would... I would assume
1: the second, because she kind of expected to have some kind of skill. she had been out of it for almost 20 years at that point.
0: Mm -hmm. So, things carry on in the same prolific vein. She's doing a lot of extracurricular activities, as Eleanor has given us a window in on. She's writing novel after novel still for about the next decade. So we're just going to jump ahead to the late 1880s. There's not a whole lot of information about um, what she's doing between then anyway, except for the novels she's writing. And we'll have a link to her bibliography in our show notes as well. Um, So you can fill in the gaps by attaching them to novels for those years. Um, At this time, acquaintances describe her as Amiable, kindly, introspective, a pleasant matron-like woman above the medium height with a complexion suggesting more of horse exercise and open air than hard work in a library. So she's still very hale and hearty. She seems to really enjoy her walks and her time outdoors. Not the pasty image you might get in mind when you think of modern writers who are slaving over their laptops in poorly lit rooms. She seems very healthy and happy.
1: Yeah, it's a really... um... In her novel Vixen, which came out in 1879 so just before this, that there's a um, the Vixen character whose name slipped my mind, her name isn't Vixen, but everyone calls her Vixen, so she goes to stay in Jersey actually with a respectable lady who's called Miss Skipwith, who's kind of, I'm pretty sure is Eliot, and is writing her key to all mythologies, and it's very doesn't look like she like enjoys horse exercise and open air. She's definitely hard at work in the library. <laughs> really funny that um, Braddon herself is being contrasted against that image.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. So even in the Victorian era, there was a distinct stereotype about what authors should look like, and Braddon did not look like it. So her five surviving children. I guess it's time we should maybe. Fill in some of the gaps about them and what they're up to, because by this point they're mostly all grown, so let me just repeat their names. It's Gerald Fanny William Babington, who she mostly calls will uh, Winifred Rosalie, who goes by Rosie, and Edward Henry Harrington, Ted, the baby of the family, and uh we'll fill them in kind of chronologically based on you know like what they did when they grew up so Gerald did a year at Cambridge, spent two years in Germany at the University of Würzburg and the University of Hanover, and then went off to become an actor. He's the first of the children to kind of take after his mom in that way. In February of 1887, Gerald had a nervous breakdown while on tour in America. And nervous breakdown, um, I guess I should have mentioned earlier, is a catch-all phrase at this point in time, so it might be overwork, it might be some kind of illness that they didn't know how to classify, or it might be a struggle with mental health. Um, so it's really hard to say. It's It could it could be any of a number of things. But Maxwell went over to see what could be done, and Braden held down the fort at home and continued churning out books. By July, I'm happy to report that Gerald was back on the stage and Max was home. And Braden tried to be really invested in all of her children's careers, and she, she shows that after I guess both before and after this point by um, really trying to work her connections and promote her children. And she does all she can. And Gerald works really hard, but never really a stunning success. I guess he makes a living, um, but doesn't marry until late in life. So after his mother passed away. So he's a confirmed bachelor for most of the time uh, of which we're speaking. Um, In 1885, Braddon's second oldest, Fanny, got engaged to the son of a wealthy chairman of the London Stock Exchange. Her fiancé's name was Edmund Salus. Um, And Braddon helped them house hunt, which I think is really cool. And Oscar Wilde attended their wedding, which I think is so cool that I used three exclamation points, um, which should say a lot. Pretty cool. I wish Oscar Wilde had attended my wedding, but alas, he was long long passed away. So Fanny produced Braddon's first grandchild in 1887, a boy she named after her brother Gerald. Braddon called him Gerald Minor. Fanny was seriously ill after the birth, but did recover. And I've been working in this quilt for so long that sometimes I forget how how much Victorians themselves took it for granted, that uh, childbirth was really dangerous, Um, medical advances... We're coming, but we're still pretty slow. Um, Within the public memory, Princess Charlotte had died giving birth, and it was really a scary time, even if you lived through the birth itself. A number of things could mean that you're suddenly uh, in, in grave danger of dying, and so everyone kind of collectively holds their breath for Fanny, but she does pull through. In 1892, she gives birth to twins, and the next year, the whole family moves to Belgium. I'm trying to
1: find whether it's, um, obviously, it's lack of an intentional decision, but whether it's brave or foolhardy to get pregnant again after that. But it's your way to do
0: it. Yeah. I mean, the Victorians did have contraceptives and abortificents, uh, both of which were extremely dangerous as well. And so just kind of between a rock and a hard place.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's probably hit and miss as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, and even like Queen Victoria really infamously hated having children, but even she kept doing it. It was so much expected of a woman, so if the Queen couldn't shirk it, then many of the, the common women must have felt the same.
1: Yeah, no one can get away with uh, things that you
0: potentially can't stay. Right. I'm still stunned every time I think of it, uh, that she had six children of her own and five stepchildren and still managed to write 90 novels. That's a bad thing, about. Um. So, the middle kid, Will, was definitely Braddon's favorite. Um, I originally wrote was possibly, um, but the more I read, the more it was glaringly clear. Will was the favorite. Um I don't even know if she tried to hide it that much. Uh Robert Wolf notes that he appears in Broaden's diary almost every day. So, um yeah. He went to Calderon's art school in 1880. On his twenty first birthday in eighteen eighty seven, his father gave him one of the family journals, Mistletoe Bow, which was the last of the family magazines, actually. Um, it was one of those kind of gifts like somebody gives you something just because they don't want it anymore really. Um, (laughs) Max was really tired of running it. Um, He's sort of petering down at this time, even though Braddon is still maintaining this serious output. Braddon was editing Mistletoe Bow, and she contributed a short story in every issue. But Will didn't really like the business side of it, I think. He hated canvassing for advertisements, and subscription rates began to drop off a bit. He commissioned a bunch of up-and-coming artists, and the magazine took on a distinct Art Nouveau tone, but he struggled to attract writers to match that tone. He said that the writing he was getting was really old-fashioned, with the exception of his mother's. Uh, But he must have uh, gritted his teeth and, and borne down, because at one point during his editorship, he campaigned for submissions so successfully that he got a huge flood of them, and had to rope his siblings into helping sort through them all. And I think it's at this time that Arthur mackin I've never actually said his name out loud.
1: No, neither. I would have said Mackin as well, though.
0: Eh? Yeah, Arthur Ma- Arthur Macken, um sent in the great god Pan, um, which you may have heard of because it was a big deal, uh, but Will rejected it because it was too long. So the thing that could have potentially saved the magazine got passed over, and the magazine pretty much just slowly faded out of existence after that. Speaking of Braden's would-have-bends.
1: Yeah, I love the image of Will reading, like, the first 20 pages, seeing how much is left and just going, oh, it's good, but too much. I'll just get Mom the right to
0: write something. I just don't have, this, don't have the space for this. <laughs> Apparently all the siblings really liked it, so, yeah. They came so close. Even before taking over the editorship of this magazine, Will was dabbling with writing. And even though he appears at this time to be really lackadaisical um, and feckless like his grandfather, the seeds were planted for future success. He was on his way to becoming a very successful writer like his mother. In 1886, Broughton wrote to her friend Wilkie Collins, hi again, Wilkie, um, that she wanted her son to meet quote, the master of my craft, who is also my friend. So that's quite a sweet homage to, to Collins there.
1: That's nice. I feel like it is kind of, if you have a really successful parent, you're going to go one of two ways, you're either going to be like, it's sorted, like, mom can support me, or you see her drive, and you kind of like emulate it. Yeah. So it does seem like will goes between the two extremes rather than doing one or the other.
0: Maybe it was also a struggle to find his own thing, like, under the shadow of this yeah. woman. You know, like, he he's still writing, but I, it would have been hard. I, I think it would have been intimidating to even start writing if your mother is so good at it.
1: Yeah, right. So his, his, his like, focus is on writing as well. When he when his dad gives his, him his magazine to run, he's just like, I'm not interested in this.
0: Yeah. So kudos to him for being brave enough to stick it out and make it. Yeah,
1: definitely. I didn't mean to
0: interrupt him. I wouldn't do an
1: interrupting <laughs> yes. Oh
0: no. No, I think that was a really valid point. Like I'm surprised but like two of her sons actually took after her rather than their father, also. Yeah, so in the eighteen eighties she was still really active socially and attended lots of theater performances. Um and I found this really exciting because I'm currently working on a dissertation chapter ...about Bram Stoker, but, um, she becomes friends with Sir Henry Irving and Bram Stoker, which, this is still way before Dracula came out, and a, an assortment of other Victorian celebrities, but she would hang out with the Stoker family, and, um, I, yeah, that was really exciting to me. Also during this period, she spent lots of time traveling in Europe with Max and the the children who were still living at home, um, so that would be Will, Europe, Rosie, Ted, uh, Will, Rosie, and Ted, yeah. Um, In 1887, they headed to Paris uh, and traveled around France. So they end up in Cannes while they are, like, basically as soon as they get there, they experience an earthquake. But Browden's really blasé about it. She writes in her journal. She just, like, writes it in a list of items that happened to her that day. So it goes something like, earthquake at 6 a.m., morning walk, bought ribbon, wrote 2.5 pages, wrote to post office, and carries on in that vein. Yeah, I love that she
1: doesn't even write, like, woken up by earthquake she's just like yeah earthquake." 6am
0: <laughs> as happens occasionally um in Cannes they met the prince of wales good old birdie i didn't find anything more about that so what they thought of one another is uh a mystery to me but probably yeah in her diary 6am earthquake Two pm met royalty yeah <laughs> <6 a. m. laughs> Uh, I like to think they got on really well, but who knows?
1: From the Neo Victorian novel Troy.
0: Yes, we have now provided plots or premises for three Neo Victorian <laughs> novels, listeners. Okay, so on a similar on another trip, on a later trip, um, Rosie got to dance with Prince Henry of Battenberg, who was engaged to Queen Victoria's daughter Beatrice. So they had brushes with royalty several times over over in France and on the continent. But in 1891, Maxwell's health was beginning to decline. Uh, Now, Maxwell was born in 1824, the same year as Wilkie Collins, so by now he's 67, which is pretty far up there given that the average Victorian life expectancy for men is about 40. He had bouts of some illness in January and again in May, at which point Braddon went to London to buy him an invalid chair. They hired a nurse, and they pretty much stopped traveling. Their son, Will, their middle son, um, remembered this time as a tense one, writing that his father was irritable and hard to be around. There's no mention of this in Braden's diaries, though. Maybe she still saw him through rose-colored glasses. She does note that with pain, though his intellect stayed sharp, he became highly emotional. She spent a lot of time reading to him.
1: I wonder if as well that's the difference between your dad becoming irritable and your husband. Not that you wouldn't notice it when it's your husband, but you're kind of, I don't know, have more reason to, to give it a bit
0: more. Yeah, and you would understand it on a much different level, I think. Yeah. Because as children, I mean, he's Will is a, an adult at this point, but as children we have a tendency, I think often... We have a tendency to think of our parents as superhuman or not quite human in the same way we are. Like Yeah. Definitely. Impervious to the maybe. to the <laughs> trials of life, I guess.
1: Yeah, maybe she's got a bit more experience with the downsides of aging than yeah.
0: Will. Yeah. Um so right around this time, Rosie Kid number four got engaged uh, on her r- right after her twenty second birthday. Uh, so, side note: I'm increasingly frustrated that all the information about Braden's daughters focuses on their marriages, where we get to hear about others' careers and interests and pursuits, or the sons' careers and interests and pursuits. And the daughters were doing other things too. Presumably, I mean, they had to. The marriage didn't take all their time, especially before they got married. So this is a place where I think um, more research, archival research, if information exists about it, would r- really be a great benefit to our understanding of Braddon and her family. Because uh, really, all we know about her daughters is they got married and they had children. Yeah, I I agree
1: wholeheartedly.
0: Um. Yeah. <laughs> but moving on from that soapbox, um Rosie's fiance, his name was Robert Lachlan. He was eight years older than her and a very talented mathematician. See, we even know <laughs> we even know what their fiancees do. <laughs> uh, okay. Maybe I'll really move on now. Um
1: uh, how well they do it.
0: Yeah. Um, Rosie and Robert plan to move to Cambridge and Braddon helped them house hunt as well. I guess all of that moving as a child really prepared her to evaluate houses, because she helped every single one of her children buy their first house, or uh, select their first house.
1: I wonder as well, which is kind of the same reason that I'm always, whenever someone says the house thing, I'm like, I'll go with you, just pure no- like nosiness, which I think it goes in kind of hand-in-hand hand with being a writer, where you're like, I want to see how as many people as possible live.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's a good point.
1: Yeah, I think it might be a bit of both of those things.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, seeing all those floor plans couldn't have hurt either, just to know, like, uh, what houses, what different people's houses look like and how she can use that in her novels, yeah. So Rosie and Robert have a son in 1892. His name is Austin. But Rosie is really slow to recover, and it could be any number of those things I mentioned earlier that are associated with childbirth. She was really scary slow to recover. A month afterward, she was still pretty much immobile, She did very slowly recover, but then in 1894, at the same time her father is having worse and worse bouts of health, she takes seriously ill. I'm gonna leave you hanging with that for a moment and talk about Ted, and then we'll get back to it. I apologize. Secret plot to keep you listening. Suspense. Ted, the baby, went to Trinity College in 1891. He was always kind of sickly. He was subject to asthma and bronchitis. I really feel that right now because we've had, um something like 14 wildfires in the state of Oregon this summer. And if my voice sounds all scratchy, it's because I've been unable to avoid breathing in smoke. Yeah, so I'm really uh, sympathetic to Ted's plight. Uh, But nevertheless, he enjoyed outdoor activities like horseback riding and hunting. And he, like his uncles or his great uncles and grandfather before him, studied the law. So he was preparing to take the bar in 1891. Max's children, Nicholas, Elizabeth, Polly, John Maxwell Jr., who went by Jack, and Robert, also come and go during all of this time, but biographers have focused less about them, even though Braden, um was very fond of all of them and, and thought of herself as a mother figure for them. Maxwell ended up giving Jack and Robert the family publishing business. And Jack was a very shrewd businessman. He was stubborn... He fought for rights to reprint some of H. Rider Haggard's novels, Dawn and the Witch's Head specifically. And Haggard was immensely popular, so there probably was quite a tussle over those rights. But he was apparently kind of exploitative, and people were not... After a while, they they didn't really want to go into business with him. So so Braden had some problems with her own writing business because of Jack tenaciousness, I guess? I don't know. Um, and that was... those Those problems were in part relieved, but um in, in an unfortunate way when he passed away in eighteen eighty nine. So apparently it was a bit of relief that she could uh, take control of her own affairs a little bit more, um, but obviously she didn't want it to happen in that way. <laughs> but it's really at this time that Braddon or that Braddon's biographers make note of how shrewdly she conducted her own business and how She took into account the culture and uh, publishing trends as she decided what novels to write and um, was really adept at identifying cultural shifts and incorporating them into her work. And so even today, people remark on how modern her writing feels because she was able to recognize those things and account for them. For a long time in her career, she clung tenaciously to the three-volume novel, uh, but eventually began writing a number of one-volume novels, in part for the reasons I just mentioned. In the 80s and 90s, the, the one-volume novel became really popular and really important because it marked the end of Moody's reign and also a sort of renewed experimentation with the novel as a form that was considered high art, as as far as novels can be high art. Um, I mentioned briefly in the last episode that circulating libraries dictated the market to an extent, and Moody was at the top of the heap. Um, He wanted three-volume novels because they were economically really a sound investment, so that's what everyone wrote. But people began to push against this arbitrary foreman experiment for art's sake and for money's sake, among them George Gissing, probably the most respected proponent of this, but also um, one of my favorite Victorian authors, Marie Corelli. Um, who was one of the first modern bestsellers after the, the fall of the Moody Empire. And yes, this is a bit of a teaser for a future episode. Anyway, moving on. In 1894, my favorite Braden novel was published, Thou Art the Man. In 1895, the whole family falls ill with what sounds like a bout of the influenza, because Maxwell catches the influenza and in his already weakened state, he does not do well. He, over over a period of days, he just drastically declines, and, and then he dies. Braden is devastated because they'd been together for 34 years, and clearly she was devoted to him. How was he when he died? Let's see. Um. Not sure. Okay, oh, so Seventy, is that? Seventy-one. Seventy-one. I think. Um, well, he was born in eighteen twenty-four. Yeah, 71. oh yeah, because it's ninety-five. I don't. I was looking at ninety. This is I cannot be trusted to do math. Um, <laughs> so he's seventy-one. He's this be
1: pretty serious for older people in twenty seventeen. He's not quite as
0: old as I thought he was, but
1: yeah, it's not. Unfortunately, not massively surprising.
0: I mean, especially if he had been ill for quite a while before that, his immune system was probably compromised. So, yeah. as with earlier deaths, she mourned but kept to work. So uh, she attended to his affairs pretty much right away, destroying old letters, which just makes me so sad inside. Um, how much more we could have known if they hadn't, if she hadn't burned the letters
1: i wish i could go back in time and stop all victorians from burning the letters
0: i know it was such a bad habit of theirs letters and manuscripts
1: looking at you dickens stop burning your letters
0: but then before before Braddon has really had time to come to terms with her loss um rosie rosie's health goes into serious decline in fact it's bad enough that her doctors order her to go to australia i like, i'm I'm guessing for the healthier climate, although people have speculated that it was a mental um illness and that she was supposed to have rest away from her family and any of the demands of life um because her husband did not go with her. she went to Australia by herself Scary. wait that's a that's a big deal in the nineteen the hundreds.
1: It takes, like, months to get over there.
0: Yeah, I and mean, then people go over there, and then, like, they're never heard from again, or you don't see them for ten years. What happened when
1: Judge Torbois went there? That Braddon's joke, but,
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird foreshadowing, could you've known. So, between 1894 and 1905, Braddon's travelling increases dramatically. She goes abroad every year, which was something she'd enjoyed... Before Maxwell's illness and had to stop doing when he became ill, um, or didn't really have to, I guess, but did so she could be with him and and help take care of him. And she also spends increasing amounts of time with Will and her grandchildren. Um, in 1896, at 71... She finally begins to slow down a little bit, although like by anyone else's standards, she's still just uh, basically a workaholic. <laughs> in 1897, her brother and his family visit from Tasmania. So yeah, it's been a while since we heard from Edward. He pops in. Um, this is the last time she ever sees him, because he dies on February 3rd, 1904. So we've reached the sad part of the podcast, where everything's a downward uh, spiral to the inevitable end, um, this is the part of the podcast I've, I've learned to really hate, because every, all the people you get so invested in, they're just passing away one by one.
1: One thing I hate about history is you get really invested in these people and then remember that they all died.
0: <laughs> and they died so long ago, but it's like, fresh all of a sudden. Yeah, come straight back. Um, I... I got teary-eyed when I talked about Wilkie Collin's death in in my first episode. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Poor guy. Um, So, Edward dies in 1904. Oh, gosh. Um, This is out of order. Anyway, um, so 1897, we have uh, Edward's visit. In 1899, her daughter Rosie dies. She's only 30. Um, so I don't think it was just a mental illness that precipitated her trip to Australia, although there are no details about, like, what was the cause of death. Lots of Braddon's diary entries of, after this mention walks to the cemetery to leave flowers for her various loved ones there. So she's increasingly meditating on mortality Broughton's still highly social, though, hanging out with Rhoda Broughton, another notable sensation fiction writer who I eventually hope to have an episode or two about, um, also still hanging out with the Stokers, which by now uh, Bram Stoker has written Dracula, and it's outperformed, um, or it's one of the best sellers at the end of the century, and so he's big stuff now, um, and hanging out with other eminent Victorians of her acquaintance. In 1903, baby Ted gets married to Maud Hudson. Braden helps them set up house. Maud and Ted have three children, Marjorie, Betty, and Georgina. And their family visits, visits Braden often. So it's good to know that she's not alone in her old age. In 1907, she suffers from an illness she later, later refers to as a nervous breakdown, but which was probably a stroke. They left her wheelchair-bound for about a year, and her left leg never fully recovered. She walked with a cane for the rest of her life. She's becoming increasingly reliant on her favorite son, Will, um, and he's very devoted to her. uh, But there's a sense in some of his writing and some of her writing that he's worried that he's too devoted to her, that all of his identity is being used up in caring for her. Um, And Freud's theories have are really gaining traction at about this time. And it seems like Will's fiction, because by this time he's established himself as a pretty successful writer, flirts with some of these Freudian anxieties. So, um, like, not quite... Oedipal, but just that he feels like his masculinity is being... Um... Thwarted? Not, that's not the right word, yeah. Um... Yeah, like he can't develop as a man because his mother is so much a huge part of his life. It's
1: like you yeah,
0: yeah. You know, it's such a shame.
1: It's nice to be close to your mom. Like, be a caring son. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I think he feels guilty about it later. Like he should have just gotten over himself and been all there for her. But yeah. Um, in 1911, she mentioned seeing an airplane in full flight, descending, and stationary. Um, in 1912 or 1913, she bought a car, but sadly I wasn't able to find out what kind of car. Um, if one of you listeners happens to know, please do share. I also wasn't able to find out, like, if she drove it herself or had someone else drive her, and what she thought of it. It's very curious.
1: I love the idea of her driving herself. I feel like with her left leg injury it's probably more likely that she
0: will drive her. Yeah. I just wish I, I want to picture her like in driving goggles speeding around like at, at the top speed, whatever. I mean they cars didn't go so so fast back then, but uh like speeding around as fast as she could. Part of me wants to picture that, but I, I don't think it's quite likely. I would love it though. In 1913, something amazing happened. Um, she attended a filming of her novel, Aurora Floyd. It was a 1912 film and two reels directed by Theodore Marston and starred Florence Labadie. I hope I'm saying her name right. I have no idea. I, I don't even know. I She looks like she's a very striking actress, but I, I hadn't ever heard of her before. I should um, ask some of my friends in cinema studies for the lowdown. In 1914, World War One was just starting up, or England's um, participation in it, and uh, Will helped gather a battalion and received a lieutenant's commission. So Braddon um, also at this time begins helping hospital patients, and I think that maybe this was her way of feeling like she was helping him too, helping keep him safe, participating in the things she that her son was so involved in. On December 27th, 1914, she wrote in her diary, no church, a little tired after exciting days, walk in the garden with Will. This is her last entry. Shortly after that, and about New Year's, she received news that Will's regiment would be going to France. And then on February 4th of 1915, she'd passed away at Litchfield House. She was almost 80 years old, and her cause of death was apparently, quote, the gradual breaking of a number of minor vessels in the brain. So it sounds like maybe there's another stroke then?
1: Yeah. I Yeah, I imagine so. Hmm. I think it's really poignant that her last ever diary entries is a little tired after exciting days.
0: Yes. That could be her life in in miniature, yeah. So, even before her death, in the last years of her life, people were already sort of thinking about the legacy that she'd left, especially in England. And um, Arnold Bennett writes, She is part of England. She has woven herself into it. Without her, it would be different. This is no mere fanciful conceit. She is in the encyclopedias. She ought to be in the dictionaries. He added, There are thousands of tolerably educated English people who have never heard of Meredith, Hardy, Ibsen, Maeterlinck, Kipling, Barry. You would travel far before you reached the zone where the name of Braddon failed of recognition.
1: Such a lovely, closing sentiment.
0: Yes. I'm so impressed by Braddon. I was kind of afraid that learning more about her would, um... You know, sometimes you learn about somebody you admire, and you learn a bunch of stuff that just means you can't really esteem them in the same way anymore. I was really worried that that might happen, but actually I I, I find her so much more relatable and also definitely worthy of looking up to, I think.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. As soon as I read that thing about potatoes, I was like, I would I'd admire this woman.
0: Oh, yeah. So that, dear listeners, is The Life of Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Um... Do you have any closing thoughts, Eleanor? Um, I was just thinking about the Bennett quote
1: and how House forces on and you can go to plenty of places in England where the name would, if Brandon would fail, of recognition. Um, and it's really, obviously in the past 20, 30 years, that's really changed and hopefully it'll change more. And yeah, I feel some kind of obligation to give a shout out to my supervisor, Anne-Marie Bella, who is one of those people changing that.
0: Yes, yeah, I'm working with uh, Anne-Marie I just submitted something to a special issue That she's uh, editing on Braden And I'm really excited that this kind of work is being done And I think it's really important for us to remember People like Braden Because it's so easy And has in fact happened That so many of these really talented And fascinating writers Are forgotten um, When like, in favor of the men who, who have managed to sort of just take over our, our understanding, our perspective of the 19th century. So everyone knows Dickens, but, like, somebody who's just as talented and just as um, important to literary history has, like, almost, was almost lost to us.
1: Yeah, and I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the thing that the whole podcast about, about popular fiction that it's so easy to pretend that only the really esteemed things happened, but actually there's all of this, like, penny fiction, periodical fiction. It's incredible, and you you need to read it.
0: Absolutely. So, if you're really interested to read some of her work and wondering where to start, I would recommend, actually, Lady Adelaide's Secret. It's a really good entry into her large body of work. Or if you don't have time for a novel... She's got a collection of ghost stories, which is really fun. It's called, I believe it's called The Face in the Glass, but I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah,
1: I have to to say my favorite brand novel is Henry Dunbar, just because it's a sheer, the absurd twist and turn of the plot. I was talking to a friend about it recently, and he mentioned the railway crash, which I had forgotten even happened, because there's so many twists and turns.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. There's just so much of her work that, like, it's impossible. Everyone I meet always always um, recommends a different novel, and I just wish I had a year or two to sit down and read them all.
1: I guess all the thing with her is that you can't do that thing where you, refresh, you write every single novel of an author that, that you love.
0: Right, And also, you can't point out a single novel that's really representative of her work. No. <laughs> Which is actually amazing, because so many authors today... I mean, they write prolifically, but every novel is basically just a slightly changed version of their last one.
1: Yeah, like change the name and uh, the setting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, so please tune in uh, next month for our fiction episode where we'll read a surprise piece of Mary Elizabeth Broden's fiction and look forward to some other goodies and thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you.
1: After the ball, done by Mr. George Jager. A little maiden Climbed an old man's feet Back for a-
0: If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to the Victorian Scribblers Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash victorianscribblers. That's wwwpatreoncom slash Victorian victorianscribblers. There you can find all the latest updates about the podcast, most recent episodes, exclusive content, and links to all of the social media pages. You can also drop me a line at victorianscribblers@outlook.com. at outlook.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you. Bye. Music for this podcast courtesy of Museopen. www.museopen.org